Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 398. This is a special Yud Aleph Nissen 120-year edition. Of course, it's also a special Pesach edition. But what's unique this year is the 120th birthday of the Rebbe. This program is dedicated in honor of Moshe and Chani Pinson with admiration by Eli and Nachama Sanderson. So, 120 years is a unique milestone. First of all, we find the Torah, Moshe Rabbeinu, the first Rebbe of all, lived 120 years, was born on the 7th of Adar, and his Hilula, his passing, was on the 7th of Adar, exactly 120 years. And the Torah talks about that complete cycle and how Moshe was perfect, that even when he reached 120, nothing really changed or shifted in his being, in his spirit, in his eyes, in his, uh, even in his moisture, in his lachluchis. So 120 is definitely a cycle. We also find, fascinatingly, a talk that the Rebbe gave, Chav Cheshvin, Tav Shemem Aleph. Chav Cheshvin is the birthday of the Rebbe Rashab, and Tav Shemem Aleph was 120 years from Tav Reish Chav Aleph. The 120th birthday of the Rebbe Rashab. And in it, the Rebbe speaks, elaborates, the whole Fabring, and that's the theme, the 120th year of the Rebbe Rashab. When you listen to that Sikha, and it's been playing, people have heard it, it's being replayed a lot lately. Literally, you have a blueprint for exactly how to look at the perspective on the Rebbe's 120th birthday. As the Rebbe said a number of times in the Tale of the Balshemt of Nefroin, that Baal Shem Tov interprets that as saying that when you come up above, they will ask you a situation and tell you, how would you deal with this situation? How will you judge? And whatever you say will then be judged on you because they give you basically your scenario and you're pasketing on yourself. They just don't tell you your name. So the Rebbe said, of course, that's also in Kedusha and Holiness, especially by Rebbe. If a Rebbe says something about one situation, then of course it applies the same thing to him. So some of the points which I will review from that sikh of Chav Cheshvin are extremely relevant now. Interestingly, it also it talks about there, the Rebbe speaks there about Malchus Mizgarizu Bezu, nations conflict with one another, and speaks about the capital Kuf Chav Aleph, that were Ma'ayin Yove Ezri, Esa Enel Aori Ma'ayin Yove Ezri, that people will look up to, to, the, to the mountains and, and will look up with their eyes and raise their eyes to the mountains. Ma'ayin, from where will come my help? And the Rebbe explains that. So we'll talk about that as well. So to begin from the beginning, let's begin with the facts. In the year 1902, the Hebrew year, Tofre Samach Beis, on the day, Friday morning, Yeralef Nisan, the Rebbe was born. In a city called Nikolaev, a Ukrainian city. The Rebbe would grow up, firstly in that city, then his father, Ablev Yitzchok, was appointed the, the chief rabbi, as the Rebbe once called it, so to speak, chief rabbi, of the city was then called Yekaterinoslav, was later changed to Dnepropetrovsk, the name they called Dnepro, 
And so the Rebbe grew up in those cities. We know not a lot about the Rebbe's early life, but we do know about the Rebbe's Yemaledas, which frankly, we actually didn't know it was Yeral Fnissen for many years, even though in Hayyem Yem that the Rebbe himself published in 1943, Yeral the entry on Yeral Fnissen in Hayyem Yem is about a birthday. I think that most people, or maybe nobody really knew it was the Rebbe's own birthday. Uh, but later it was discovered either through the Rebbe's mother or other ways. And also interestingly, though the Rebbe, of course, I'm sure honored and celebrated his birthday, as he writes there in the Hayyem Yem, that that's a day of his bodhidus, a day of introspection, soul-searching, and taking on resolutions. But in public, besides Tovshin Yudbeis, when the Rebbe turned 50, which is a year, two years after the Rebbe assumed leadership, and he said the Maimer Adnai Svasei Tiftach from Kapitel Nun Aleph, and then 10 years later, when the Rebbe turned 60, he had a Fabrengen. 60 is also a unique day. 60 is half of 120. The Gemara talks about reaching the 60th birthday. So the Rebbe had a Fabrengen Yud Aleph Tiftach in Tovshei 1962. But till 1971, it was not a regular Fabrengen, a regular celebration each year until 1971. And the Rebbe then said the famous Maimer B'yem Ashti Osar, and from then on, every year would be a Fabreng Yud Alf Nissen with a Mimer, with Sichas. That became a more formal, that's when they also began to sing Nigunim songs that were associated with Chabad Nigunim that were connected with the letters, the words rather, from the Kapitel Tilin, the custom that the Baal Shem Tov instituted that when a birthday you start saying the Kapitel Tilin of your 70, you start saying Kapitel Ayinal of 71. If you're 71, you say the chapter, the Psalm 72. Etc. So that's when that began. And ever since, the Fabringas of Yeralaf to share some little inside information, that was when the Rebbe, so of course, in that year, the Rebbe turned 70. Tovshin uh, Lamed Beis, which was a big thing, the 70th year of the birthday, and they established 71 institutions in honor of that. The Rebbe then Fabring that year, the Russian, many Russian Jews also came out from Russia that year, interestingly. And the Rebbe Fabreng then every day Pesach in 1972, and he would explain a part of a, 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 one of the verses from the new psalm of, of chapter 73. I'm sorry, <laughs> chapter 71. It was the year 1972, which was Tov Shin Beis, but Kapitel Ayin Aleph. And we have today, printed in Lakut Sikhs, volume 7, in the Hesophis, in the editions, you have the Rebbe's explanations in, in many of the verses of that, uh, that psalm, Psalm 71. What happened in Shnas HaShmenim, that I remember very explicitly because I was then involved in writing Fabrengens. I did that again already in the late 70s, but definitely right then I was the main writer and, the, and, and maniach of the Fabrengens. So it was around before Hanukkah, and I'm sharing this because I think it's a very fascinating, interesting point that can be related to this year, Around right before Hanukkah time, I decided, I came up with an idea. I said, you know, on the 80th birthday of the Rebbe's coming, Shemaynim Shana, it's a significant date as well. And the Rebbe marked these days, you know, these, the decades. And in Begvuras Shemaynim Shana, there's the expression that, that uh, the mission, the, the, again, in Tehillim it says that the, the days of a person, Yemeshne Sech Shivim Shana, in Begvuras Shemaynim Shana. So Shmeinim is mentioned 80th, the 80th year. 
So I wrote to the Rebbe a suggestion that maybe for the 80th year we can publish all the Maimorim, all the Hasidic discourses that the Rebbe delivered over the years, including Tavshin Yudbeis, and when he was turned 50, Tavshin Chavbeis when he turned 60, and, and from 1971 when the Rebbe turned 69, going forward till, uh, till Tavshin Mem Aleph. It was a collection of, I would say, maybe 20, maybe 15 Maimorim. The Rebbe responded, there's no time to edit them, meaning the Rebbe to edit them. They were most, they were all unedited my Marim at the time. Suggest something that does not need my editing. Now that's a, I found that, wow, I was really taken by that. Because the Rebbe is actually saying, he didn't just say, I don't have time. He said, suggest something that won't need my editing. He wanted a suggestion. So you could imagine I didn't leave any stone unturned. I called everybody I can reach all over the world. What would you suggest? That Rebbe saying suggest something for his birthday. Obviously in response to what I had written. And people, most people actually, to be very honest, didn't have any clue. What should we give out? What could we suggest to give out in honor of the Rebbe's birthday? But the consensus that I did build from several people was a two, a two section type of book that would come out or a book, or a, a pamphlet, a kuntras. One would be called Shar Teira, and bring together all the different commentary. We had the Tzemach Tzedek Zial Eir, commentary on Tehillim, on Kapitel Pei Aleph, Psalm 81, which the Rebbe would begin saying, and we'd all begin saying that year, as well as on chapter 80, and then different things in Chassidus, including from the Rebbe's father, explaining what is 80 years, the significance of it, we put together a nice, sizable, uh, maybe 10, 20 pages, 25 pages, 20 pages, something like that. That's Shar Teda. The second would be Shar Maisa, a collection of, of the, the highlights of the Rebbe's activities, all the campaigns, the Kibbutz Chabad, from the beginning of the Rebbe's leadership. Pictures, and maybe some articles. I sent this into the Rebbe as a suggestion. I said I consulted with different people. And here was the consensus, these two things. The Rebbe crossed out part two, Shar Maisa, and wrote, Ach v'rak kevitz teirani. It should only be a booklet of teira. Interesting. Teira. The Rebbe's inyan is teira. The Rebbe actually said it when he turned 70, the same thing. He said, if you want to do anything in my honor, it should be all around teira. In other words, it wasn't about any type of chitzenius external things, teira. And the Rebbe actually edited and added new things to include in this what would be called Kavis Yer Nissen that came out that year, that was that so we gave. And the Rebbe added to it. I, I had written out six, seven items. The Rebbe added eight, nine, ten. He added to give uh, to the potato of the Bashem to why we say the, the custom of saying the capital till and that corresponds to one's age. And a few other pieces the Rebbe added to it. Okay, that was a tremendous thing. We suggested something. The Rebbe wanted only potato, and that's what it came out. And ever since, Bachram prepare every year for Yeralaf Nissan a similar kavitz, take gathering together everything Achsidis on the Rebbe's capital, as was the model that we created back in 19 in Tovshin Mem in 1982, when the Rebbe turned 80 years old. Now, then the Rebbe added on my note to the Rebbe, on the bottom he wrote, V'oid V'ikir, primarily here, the Rebbe now came with his atzah. That alone is a lesson in life. I said, Yatsu, suggest something you did. 
Okay, very good. And now the Rebbe came back with his suggestion, which of course <laughs> overrides everything else, not to minimize the Kavitz of Yeralf Nissen. And the Rebbe's suggestion was he wrote up a good, I would say, a good 15 lines of, in his own handwriting to, to print a new edition of Tanya, which would have within it all the images in the back of the Sharblats, the cover pages of all the Tanyas that were printed anywhere to that point. At that point, it wasn't as the extent as it is today, because in the next year or two, then, in 1984, the Rebbe came out with a campaign to print a Tanya in every city in the world. So now it's in the thousands and thousands. Then it was also a substantial number, but nothing close. And the Rebbe spelled out in detail, like a real publisher, a real Meitzelayer, exactly the color, the size of the Tanya. He wanted two bendlach, two bookmarks that go, you know, come inside of a book itself, this, like ribbons. And the detail of, really, down to the details. And that's what they prepared. Little did we know that this would be the Tanya that Rebbe would actually, at the end of the Fabrengen of the 80th birthday, Yud Alfnis and Toshim Embeis, this would be the Tanya that Rebbe would give out to every person till 6, 7 o'clock in the morning. Everyone remembers that, that scene? You know, usually in a birthday you receive gifts, the Rebbe was giving gifts, the gift of Tanya. He would give out another Tanya's later, but that year it was not memorable. And that all came through this whole process. I just felt appropriate to share, just to show the significance of the Rebbe's birthday and how the Rebbe tied it to Teda and also the giving out of Tanya. So obviously, we hear Chassidus applied. I, a student, as all of you are of the Rebbe, a Chassid, a student, a, a soldier, this program wouldn't exist without that. The Rebbe, the seventh in line from the Alta Rebbe, the author of the Tanya. So that's why we're designating this entire program special to this Yeral of Nissen. I will also talk about Pesach, being that this is a program before Pesach. But we want to cover the Yeral of Nissen. I thought this is a good, some background here. So yes, in 1902, the Rebbe was born in a very different part of the world, in a very different time. Remember, it's Tsarist Russia, just to give some context. Pre-Russian Revolution, pre-World War I, pre-World War II, pre-the Holocaust, pre-everything that would be, take place in the, in the turbulent, maybe the most turbulent of all history, century. That would then lead, yes, after the World War II, it would lead to an unprecedented age of prosperity. The Rebbe became leader. Nasin, Tovshin Yud, 1950, literally five years after World War II. Now, the Rebbe went through his life, we know, as I said, begin the beginning of his life, lived in Ukraine, lived in Nikolaev, and then in Yekaterinoslav. Later, would travel approximately in 1922. So then the Rebbe would have been around 20 years old. Approximately then, first time that he went, to 23, 1923, to Petersburg, as it was known, well, as it was originally known, then it was already Leningrad, after the Russian Revolution, where he met the Friedrich Rebbe for the first time, and ultimately would marry the Friedrich Rebbe's second daughter, Chaim Mushke, in Tofresh Peites in Warsaw. So the Rebbe lived in Leningrad for that while, and after the arrest and liberation of the Friedrich Rebbe, and the next year, Tofresh Peches, the Rebbe would leave, together with the Friedrich Rebbe, Tofresh Peches, and never see his parents again, until he would reunite with his mother in Tofshin Zion, 
1947, Pesach time. And, um, but his father he would never see again. So we're talking about Tafresh Peches in the beginning of Tafresh Peches, which would be the equivalent of 19, the end of 1927, after Simchas Teda moved to Poland, and then to Riga and to Atvotsk and those cities. The Rebbe then, after his marriage with the Rebbe, and went to Berlin, and after a while went to Paris, and from there, different cities in France, and ultimately had to escape from the Nazi, Nazi occupation of France. And in 1941, on Chavches Sivan, which is exactly 81 years ago, this year, 81 years ago, the 28th of Sivan, the Rebbe and the Rebbetzin came to the United States. A year and some months after the Friedrich Rebbe came here, Tess Odesheni, the 9th of Odesheni in 1940. And from then on, in 1941, the Rebbe would remain in New York, unless, one, with one exception, 1947, Pesach time, he went to greet his mother, who had come out of Russia. He went back to France and then would bring her back to America. Again, he came back on Chavches Sivan, interestingly, that year, 1947. And from then on, the Rebbe would remain in New York, 770. Of course, in 1950, after the Histalkus of the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe assumed leadership, Tov Shin Yud, 1950, 1951, f- formally assumed it, and ever since, been the Rebbe of the Nasi of Ardar, Deir Ashvi, as the Rebbe calls it, the last generation of Golas, the first generation of Geula. Now we all know what happened in Chavzai and Adar 30 years ago and then two years and some months later, Gimel Tammuz. And yet the Rebbe lives on, the Rebbe's birthday lives on, and that's what we're doing now is honoring 120 years of the leader of our generation, Nasi Ador, Sidarenu, the Rebbe's words. So the question obviously is, maybe not to many of the listeners here, but the question I've been posed by many, why are we remembering a birthday of someone who physically is not even here? 28 years he's not here physically. Why are we honoring this day? Now for some this may sound like a sacrilegious question, but it's not. Because it's important to answer, to take for granted because he's my Rebbe. I don't need an explanation. I know he's my Rebbe, so I honor his birthday. Same thing with other chassidim. But that's because that's a personal matter to you. How do you explain it to someone who never met the Rebbe? To put it, I don't want to say the word lahavl, but a journalist asked me the other day. He said, I understand the, honoring the 120th birthday of Albert Einstein. He gave us the revolution of the relativity theory, the special relativity theory. He dramatically and radically changed science and physics, which has affected technology and our understanding of the universe, of time, space, light. Can you tell me the equivalent contribution of the Rebbe? And I found that to be a very important question. Because again, to me subjectively, yes, my father, I honor my father's birthday, I honor my mother's birthday, I honor my Rebbe's birthday. Of course, he's on a larger scale. But how do I explain that to the larger world? What's the Rebbe's contribution? So I want to talk about that. I actually gave a talk the other night. It was last Thursday, uh, last Thursday night. at a beautiful event in New York City. All the Chabad came together. They brought people to Parkey Synagogue, Senator Joel Lieberman, Rabbi Arthur Schneier, and I spoke about this very topic. It's, you can find it online if you go to our website and just search for this uh, talk. So I'm going to give a few of the highlights I said there, but in the language of my life, because it is applied, I thought it's appropriate to explain. Because even when we know things, and as you know my style many times, and I, my style, I think it's the style that Chassidus demands of us, to be honest, 
It's just that I emphasize it, that even when you learn a Maimon and, and for you it touches you, Mamalakalam, Sevakalam, and Atzmus, Simpson, Er, Kav, Kalim, it's not enough. It has to be explained to people who may not have this language, who may not know all the background. Why is it relevant to our lives? And the same has to be answered with the Alter Rebbe and Tanya, Echsidis in general, the Alter Rebbe and the Mitle Rebbe and all the Rabbeim, and of course our Rebbe as well. Why should it be relevant to someone who's not personally, subjectively connected? So the general answer is the Rebbe has created all the Chabad houses in the world and so many Jews have benefited and has reached so many people. Yes, all those that it has reached will say for sure, I want to honor the man that, that helped, helped, many people will say, change my life. Set my life in a new direction. Gave me a spiritual awakening. The different ways people express it. One fabrengen that the Rebbe delivered, you could have 20 different reactions. One person is touched by the song, one by the l'chaim, one by just looking at the Rebbe, one by the environment, by the whole scene, by being li- others by being lifted up by the spirituality of the moment, the truth of the moment, and others by the very words of the Rebbe, the teachings, and many other ways that can be affected. But what about the millions and billions of people who have no clue, who were never exposed to this? And I would, make, I would submit and make the argument that even for those that know well, it also would do, do a, ser- a service to be able to explain it in terms that even our animal soul and even our divine soul understands it in a logical way. I remember when I wrote Toward a Meaningful Life, my goal was to write it really for everyone in the world, man, woman, child, Jew, non-Jew, Secular, not secular, <clears throat> affiliated, not affiliated, to give them an introduction to the wisdom, the teachings of the Rebbe, which is really the wisdom of Torah, 90 generations, but distilled through the lens of the Rebbe. But I also understood, like Siddhis says, when you want to pick up a building, you have to pick it up from the bottom. Which means that if you can explain something to anyone out there, even someone who doesn't know Hebrew or Yiddish, or someone doesn't have any prior knowledge, then that explanation will also help those that have the knowledge and have the language. And that's indeed what happened. And I always say this, I say this to students, I say it to adults, I say it to shluchim and to shluchis. You want to really know whether you understand something? If you can't explain it in simple English to someone who doesn't know Hebrew, without using words that you would use with your colleagues, you really don't fully understand it. And the same thing is applied. And that's why it's important to have the skeptical question coming from a healthy skepticism. Why should I care? Why should the Rebbe's 120th birthday matter to me? So let me answer the question as I answered it Thursday night. And I have different ways of explaining it to this. And I since also shared it with the journalist. I think the question can be answered with another question. And that is, what is the secret of Chabad? What is the secret of the fact that the Rebbe is not here physically? And yet, not only Chabad continues, it thrives. It's tripled, quadrupled, who knows how many times over. With a passion, nobody's quit. It's only grown and it continues to grow. And has no reason to believe, there's no reason to believe that it will stop growing, God forbid. Can you imagine any company on earth that continues to thrive after the CEO is physically not there without someone replacing him? And I believe answering the second question will answer the first question. And the answer is because what the Rebbe represents is more than just a figure, an individual. He's not just a CEO and Chabad is not the company. Represents a vision, a vision for the world. 
And briefly, that vision is that even in a world of comfort and prosperity, we live a life where we don't give in to apathy, to our spiritual and transcendent values. And that is a tremendous contribution that I would say even greater than the E equals MC squared of Einstein. So let's explain. In 1950, when the Rebbe assumed leadership, it was a new world. And it would only become more so afterwards. It was a world that for the first time in history, especially for the Jewish people, but for all people, there would be the beginning, the birth of prosperity in unprecedented ways and comforts. World War II, we knew how it decimated the Jewish people and how it decimated the world. World War I before that. You go back in history, filled with wars. The Jews particularly were persecuted, expelled. The pogroms in the early 20th century and end of 19th century. Before that, the Cossacks. Before that, the Inquisition. Before that, the Middle Ages, the bloodbaths. Again, expulsions and discrimination and you name it, and, and oppression. There, was not, there is a, rarely a period in history, maybe the Golden Age in Spain for a little while, where there was any respite. So Jews were fighting, their battles were all fighting with enemies and barely trying to make it. They built strong communities, insulated themselves. But here was the first time prosperity, and the Rebbe, as a true visionary, understood that we're entering a whole new world. His father-in-law, from the moment he became leader, 1920, had to deal with the communists, was arrested, was tortured, was ultimately had to leave Russia, and, and the turbulence and upheavals in Europe, and then Nazi Europe, and then coming to America, in a wheelchair, no, no less. His father, the Rebbe Rashab, going back, you see constant, they were dealing always with the enemy was the oppression, the suffering, the pain. The Rebbe was living now in a new world. And as a true leader, understood this is the klippa. This is the challenge of our time. Comfort and prosperity is a great blessing, but it brings with it something else. It's called apathy, indifference, complacency. And one of the greatest contributions, I will not say is the only, was understanding that, taking the pulse of our times, the pulse of a generation, and what would only come afterwards would be even more prosperity, after 1950, look at the world today with technology. We're not even, in 1950 was, yes, we were the benefits of the Industrial Revolution. But look today in 2022. So I would submit that the Rebbe was the first true 21st century leader with a vision, a vision that the best defense is offense. And you need to have a vision for life, a passion that is as powerful as the passion when you're fighting oppression, but this time, the, the, the war is against apathy, against complacency, to transform the world and make it a Geuladika world, a Mashiachdika world, a world of world peace, an elimination of famine, of, and immorality, and injustice of every sort. And today we can do it, because in the previous generations, it was impossible to be a light onto nations. Even though the Jews were that, and they ultimately affected the world and brought civilization to the world through the, uh, the principles of Sinai. But they were also dealing with a world outside that was hostile to them. Today, the Jewish people can be teachers and educators and inspire. 
And indeed, you see that, that the possibility, especially with technology, to create a spiritual revolution. And that is the major contribution. That's worth honoring the birthday of such a man 120 years later. Because though, yes, it's true, 28 years the Rebbe is not here, but this vision lives on. And it lives on in the heart and soul of so many of his students and his shluchim, his emissaries and ambassadors. And it should live on in the heart and soul of every human being on earth. So I would go further and say that the 120th birthday should be an opportunity for us to be able to reach every individual on earth, literally, with this message, because it's a universal message for all of us. To create a spiritual revolution with all the gifts and blessings that we have. Of course we have our challenges. But many of our challenges are all coming, are afflictions that are a result of the lack of urgency, the lack of sense of mission. So what I also discussed in my talk, and I want to say it briefly here, that the Rebbe did it by focusing on five key principles. That each of us has a mission, a unique indispensable mission that we must embrace. Just like a company cannot exist without a mission statement, neither can you or I. Number two, you must take initiative. You can't wait for someone else. You can't be reactive. You need to be proactive. Number three, persistence. Never giving up. A relentless persistence for everything that's good and bright and light in this world. Number four, opportunities. Seeing everything, even challenges, even setbacks, even darkness as an opportunity, a spiritual opportunity for growth. And finally, the, the, the destination. That's all directed toward a goal, a destination, what we call Mashiach and Geula. If you want an acronym, it's M-I-P-O-D, like my pod. Mission, Initiative, Persistence, Opportunities, Destination. So when someone thinks of it that way, I shared this with a journalist and with many others, and I'll be very honest, just saying it with full humility, not to toot my horn, he said, wow, that's impressive. I want to write about that. We need to be able to articulate this to people. Now, if someone has other ideas to bring, of course, the Rebbe was a person, like I said, only Teda. He did this all through Teda, which was even more fascinating because he used the Teda, which was given for this purpose. The Teda is a blueprint for life. The Teda at Sinai was given in order to transform the world, to make it into a world at a divine home, or in the words of Chassidus that cites from the Medrash, Alter Rebbe in Tanya chapter 36, to turn Tachtonim, this lowest of material world, this lowest material world, the lowest of worlds, into a home, into a divine home, into a garden, into a spiritual environment. The Torah is the blueprint. So any way you can explain it, but the key is that it has to be explained to someone. Say, wow, this is relevant to me. It's the hundred twentieth birthday of a visionary that can change your life. And many ways has, even though you may not know it yet. This is the message that is not just for Yudalaf Nissen this Tuesday, the 120th birthday, but it's forever going forward. And 120 is a cycle, a cycle, a complete cycle, that now can be used as a catalyst, as a springboard, in order to bring this message to the larger world. It's very much the mission that I've dedicated my life to. As I was touched by this vision of the Rebbe. So, then if someone asks the question, how does the, Rebbe's, how does the Rebbe impact my life today? That's the answer. Especially today. 
Today we have new challenges. The challenges in 1950, 1955, today have only accelerated. We have a lot more free time, a lot more comfort, a lot more higher standard of living. And the ease of life turns us apathetic. I'll even suggest this. It's not a suggestion. It's actually a fact that most of the maladies of our time, the addictions, the, the, the anxiety, the traumas, are a result of our comforts. Now, the Rebbe brings in uh, my marim and, uh, and, and the different talks that he delivered over the years. I remember specifically, especially the talks in 1967 uh, and 68 after the Six-Day War, that there's a posuk, will come that day, Shiach's times, Yetoka b'shefer gadol, be the the sound of a great shofar. Ubo ha'evdim eretz asher v'anedochem eretz mitzrayim lishtachavus al har kotchi, and it will draw, and people will be drawn and come, and gather from everywhere. Those lost in the land of Asher, and those downtrodden and, and pushed aside, in the land of Egypt to come to prostrate themselves, and bow on God's holy mountain. And the question is asked, what is the Evdim? Evdim means lost in the land of Asher. And by, by Eretz Mitzrayim, it says only Nedochim, downtrodden, Nedochim pushed aside. And the Rebbe explains, based on Chassidus, it's one of the last Maimah the Rebbe delivered, from 1981, it has this theme as well, that there are two types of challenges in life. One is Eretz Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim comes from the word up constraints, limitations, oppression, affliction, like we're going to be celebrating Passover, the freedom from Mitzrayim. It's the gullus, it's the displacement and the challenges of poverty, of impoverished life, oppression, affliction, the one I described for thousands of years that we dealt with. There, yes, it causes people to be downtrodden, to feel oppressed, to feel pressured, to feel, um, to feel afflicted, but it only pushes them aside. It only is downtrodden. When it comes to Eretz, Asher is a different type of challenge. Asher comes from the word prosperity, opulence, comforts. It connects also to prosperity as an Asher, wealth. There, the challenge is far deeper because you get lost in your success to the point of apathy. So the, the first one, you don't become apathetic. You just become broken. It could break the spirit. It could be demoralizing as it was in Egypt. But you don't forget it at all. The second you can forget that you're even, there's a problem. I'm living comfortably. What do you want? I'm very comfortable. Apathy. Complacency. Indifference. And there it's oivdim. There you get lost. And that is the battle, the war the Rebbe went on. This is the Rebbe's impact on my life today. A model of how to deal, not to turn the clock back, how to benefit from all these blessings and still not remain apathetic to our spiritual and transcendent values. And this answers the question how to deal with the challenges of the 21st century. Remember, the best defense is offense. Technology? It's not just a matter don't get addicted to it or use it, but see it as an opportunity, a tool to bring kindness to the world. You can distribute teachings, ideas, I wouldn't be able to do any of these programs without technology. You can reach millions, billions of people today with a message and with almost no cost or no cost at all. Unprecedented. So it's like looking at the 21st century instead of saying, okay, how am I going to deal with it? See it as a 
is an opportunity that it allows us to transform the world. And finally, the methods that I mentioned, the MyPod, the Mission Initiative, Persistence, Opportunities, and Destination. So this is a brief overview of what Yudalaf Nissen means. And again, by no means is this uh, exclusive. It can be stated in different terms, different wording, different ideas, but something to work with that you can explain to any person the significance of this birthday. So it's not just about an individual. It's about a movement. As the Rebbe said, Yudalaf Nissen Tov Shemem Hey. It's not the person. It's the position. The movement of Chabad, which is universal. It's not parochial. It's not corporate. It's a universal vision that goes back to the beginning of time. Just as Sinai changed the world, this is the continuation to the point of conclusion that we will change the world and bring personal and global redemption. Okay. Now one more question that was asked about Yudal of Nissen. In the Frum world, we like to wish people good health and long life. Ad meva esr. Yes, till 120. But what is the significance of this Yudalf Nissen being the Rebbe's 120 birthday of Gimel Thomas happened 28 years ago? Well, as I just explained, this is not just about an individual and a physical birthday. The Rebbe brings the fact that we continue to celebrate someone's birthday and the years roll on, meaning you could say, one second, the person passed away. But we find in the Ragad Shavar in Nigla and from the Rebbe Rashab in Chsidis, that time continues and the Shama continues growing and, 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 and growing each year. That's why you have that the Kapitel Tilim was said about, of Rabbeim even after they had passed on. And the Ragad Shavar explains it in Nigla that the fact of the matter of soul, the years, time, there's a time also after we, live this, we leave this physical world. That's the brief answer. But even more so, what's relevant even more so, as I said, we're not talking about just simply an individual. We're talking about everything he stands for, the legacy, the teachings, the Torah, the message, the vision. And that absolutely grows and continues to grow from 120 to further than that and so on. To just conclude, well, I don't want to say conclude because there's so much more to say, but I'm going to talk more about this throughout. But I wanted to conclude by this section at least, by mentioning a few of the points from the talk that I mentioned before, from that the Rebbe delivered, Cheshven Tavshin Mem Aleph. There are two key things I want to, three things I want to point out. One is the Rebbe spoke about, some may think that since the birthday of a Rebbe that lived in a small town in another country, in Lubavitch, and here we are in Brooklyn, what connection do I have to him? Different time, different place. I never saw that Rebbe. And yet the Rebbe says, no, that's what's expected of us, to go beyond the time and place. The Rebbe said, to close yourself off in a room for a few minutes. Close your eyes and envision that you're one with the Rebbe. That's what a Rebbe is. And there's the, the fact that it's a different place or a different time doesn't matter. That all melts away. It's about the connection because it's an eternal connection that is not subject to the impermanence of time and space as we know it. And the Rebbe elaborated on that. I just think it's a tremendous point that when you connect to a vision, to a legacy, then it's not about how much time passes. Yes, it's true, 28 years ago was the last time we saw the Rebbe physically. 30 years ago, the, rest time, the last time the Rebbe spoke before he had the stroke. 120 years when he was born in a different world, part of the world, Nikolaev. 
But the Rebbe gave us the language in 1981. Literally, now we are 40 years later. 41 years later. The same idea that he spoke about then. That's one point. The second thing, the Rebbe spoke about the Kapitel Tehillim. What do you say when you start, turn 120? You say the Kapitel Tehillim. That begins with that Esa'in al-Harim. I raise my eyes to heaven, to the mountains. May I in Yahweh Ezri, from where will come my salvation? And then he and continues that Ezri Yahweh from God who created heaven and earth. But Chassidus explains Ma'ayin, not just as a question from whence, from where, but Ma'ayin is the answer. Ma'ayin, from the level of Ayin. Sometimes our salvation comes from something that is very apparent. But sometimes we can't see where it's coming from, so it comes from a level that's higher than the structure of existence. Ma'ayin. And the Rebbe referred to, actually, that was a time he was saying the world was shaking. Nations were in conflict with each other. And the Rebbe said, one suggestion has not been tried, which is joy. But how could you be joy when you see a world that is in conflict? The Rebbe says, well, we think that till and that psalm teaches us because we're looking to a place that's higher than just logic and structure. And that gives us the power that we will find salvation even in such a situation. Now, is that not relevant today? People ask exactly that question. Where's our salvation going to come? Look what's happening in Ukraine. Look what's happening in Israel. Terrorist attacks. So, some chassidim have pointed out that the word ma'ayin, this is not from the sikha, is ma'ayin is miyud alef nisan. Ayin is the same letters as yud alef nisan, a different order. Yud alef nisan, the Rebbe explains, is the number 11, is higher than the number 10. 10 is the structure. The structure of the spheres, the structure of existence, the 10 statements that God used, basarim amaris nivra elam, structure. The misper ashalam, the complete number, the complete cycle. Yud alef indicates on something ayin that's higher than structure. Chad Where God is one, not in a measurable way. Ten is still measurable. So it's critical to have the structure. That's what this world is about. But the structure is permeated with something that transcends structure. That's Yud Aleph. Yud Aleph Nisan. Which also not incidentally, is what do we say, the Nasi? Which Nasi do we say in Yudal of Nisan? Each of the days, starting from the first of Nisan, we say each day the, the offering that the leader of a tribe brought for the dedication of the temple. Yudal of Nisan is Shevet Asher, from the word Asher, prosperity. A world of prosperity, not to succumb to the apathy that it can create, but on the contrary, to use it to grow to be to completely new dimensions, which you can't do when you're dealing with, just with fighting enemies outside and you're oppressed and all the challenges that that brings on. Okay. So, so much more to say. I can continue on. Obviously, this is my Rebbe, our Rebbe. But I think I put some context to it. But I want to do now is there were a bunch of different questions that came in. I want to address... Um, them as well. And I think it's all an extension of the theme of Yudalf Nissen. The Rebbe was born in Yudalf Nissen on Friday. I just want to tell an interesting story I heard from one of the Rebbe's uh, assistants, Rabbi Schollenberg Gansburg, maybe well, that once on a Friday, 
the Rebbe was rushing for Shabbos and preparing. He says, what could I do? I was born on a Friday. Everything is always a rush. Things are not finished. Things are not completed. That's what the Rebbe said. So it also just adds to the sense of urgency that we saw from the Rebbe, which was this constant, relentless drive without leaving, leaving one moment you know, connected to the Friday dimension, the Friday psyche, so to speak, of constantly dri- driven to make sure that we don't succumb, as I said, to apathy. Okay. On the 13th of Nisan, two days after the Rebbe's birthday, is the Rebbe's great-grandfather, Semach Tzedek's Histalkos, Yartzeit. This year will be the 156th Yartzeit, I believe, Tofresh Chavov, which is the equivalent of 1866. 1966 was 100. So yes, so now would be the 156th yard So someone wrote, which I thought may be very fitting to our discussion here. Dear Rabbi Jacobson, when I was a teenager, I remember the Rebbe said a sicha and made a reference that the name Tzemach, Tzemach Tzedek, was a name given to Tzemach Tzedek, even though his name was Menachem Mendel. But Tzemach Tzedek, besides the Gematria, it's also the name that was associated with him and his Sfarim. She said that the name Tzemach is related to Mashiach, and if we call the name Tzemach three times, surely he will come. When the Rebbe finished the Sikh, everyone in 770 shouted Tzemach three times together. I remember I was trembling with fear, but also with joy and inspiration because I thought Mashiach was about to come. But alas, nothing happened in a manner that I understood. I feel that nothing happened because on that day and still today, and still today, we don't have the revealed third base Amigdash, and when we finally do have it, then it will be clear to everyone that Mashiach is absolutely here. I learned the concept in yeshiva that when a tzaddik declares something, then Hashem fulfills it. So what went wrong here? The Rebbe, who was a great tzaddik, who was a great tzaddik said, if we say tzamech three times, surely he will come. We did, it, we did it as the Rebbe asked, but yet we didn't see Mashiach yet in a revealed manner. Okay, so firstly, very appropriate, this sikhet, just to give you the actual date, was the fifth night of Sukkot in Tov Shinun, 5750, which would correspond to 1989. The fifth night of Sukkot, the Rebbe would speak, fifth night of Sukkot corresponds to the Ushpiz, the guest that comes to the Sukkot, the Chesidosh guest, is the Tzemach Tzedek. And the Rebbe spoke about it, and that's indeed what happened at the end of the sikhet, the people yelled out, Tzemach Tzedek, Tzemach now you could just add to this question the many, many times, countless times that the Rebbe cried to God and to us and against the Golas and did all the work, the relentless, unceasing, unyielding, unwe- unwavering work of trying to bring the Geula, doing whatever possible. I can't answer the question why a tzaddik who put such effort and as you said, tzaddik gezer, tzaddik decrees, God fulfills, did not achieve that goal. The Rebbe himself bemoaned the fact he cried out 31 years ago, 28th of Nisan, Tov Shin Nun Aleph, 1991, that I did what I, what I don't know what more I can do. I did everything I can. And he says, I'm giving it over to you to do what you can, to do everything you can, and to cry with Anemis Admosai, till when? And maybe one, two, or three of you will come together and think of, strategize what to do and how to do. So we've talked about this many times. I've talked about it many, many times. I can't give an explanation why the Rebbe's work didn't 
to come to the fruition as that he wanted, which was the actual Gula Mitz with Mashiach in the most revealed way, and that we had to go through all the different concealments, Chavzai Nader and Gimel Tammuz. As the Rebbe said in his first Maimer, this is the Deir Ashvi. Why that did not happen, I don't have an answer. The only way we can answer it is the way the Rebbe himself answered Purim, Tav Shemem Zayin, in 1987 Purim, and Chav Ches Nissen, 1991, that I just mentioned. Both of them, the Rebbe says in Purim explicitly, that I wonder, why did Mashiach not come? So the only answer I have after struggling with it, after, the Rebbe said, after Yigiyah, after um, exerting myself, is that it went over from the Nasi Takel. That now we have to do something, so to speak, that the Rebbe himself cannot or did not want or, or something is needed from our end. So all we can do is look at ourselves. Instead of trying to ask why, we have to ask what. What are we going to do? How are we going to bring the message of Teirich, Siddhis, the Rebbe, to the world? What I said earlier, billions of people need to know about this Rebbe, about our Rebbe, about their Rebbe, about a visionary that has a plan, a blueprint for the 21st century to transform this world, this world with all its successes, to turn it into a world of Geula, to put the Aleph of Lufa Shalelem into Geula, and turn it into Geula. That's our job. That's how I would respond to this question. It's the only way. And every time the Rebbe did, whether it was the three times they yelled Tzemach, or the Ad Mosai that they sang once for over an hour and a half, or other things that were done by the Rebbe, or by Chassidim, or the Rebbe encouraging Chassidim, they all accomplished something. Maybe they broke down one more door. Maybe they opened up another locked, locked channel. They all accomplished, but we still need to push it over the finish line. And that's our job. With that, let me use the rest of this program just to talk about a few things about Pesach. The Rebbe would never ignore Pesach, God forbid. So I don't think I can do so either. So there's just a few things on Pesach. Um, so, how do... I mean, there's a little shift in topic. But uh, so we'll just make a little break. I'll make an announcement right now. There won't be a program next week because of Yom Tif. Um, but we, we will be here hopefully in two weeks, depending on schedule. I'll keep you posted. Um, so Chassidus Applied, of course, is every Sunday, 8 to 9 p.m., except on Yom Tov and other times that, 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 that simply the schedule doesn't allow. Um, I've kept to it like a clock, except a few weeks that I took, that unfortunately I had to take off because of health situation. But thank God we're here. And you can ask any question you like. That's the bottom line. That's the motto of this program. Nothing's taboo. Talk about questions. Pesach is all about questions. It's a question. Four questions. We encourage questions. Any type of question. So you go to chassidusapply.com. There's a forum there where you can write a completely anonymous question as well as find the archives of all the previous 397 programs as well as the essays and creative submissions from previous year contests as well as other resources, Hasidic resources on Samachvov and Ayin Beis, which I give a class every day. Sundays, 10, 10 a.m. And every other morning, except Shabbos, 9.30 a.m. Eastern daylight, daylight, daylight Time. Go to chassidusapply.com where you can see all the details. A live YouTube Zoom class. Okay, so now let's move to Pesach. How do I deal with my wife's OCD around Pesach? Dear Rabbi Jacobs, my wife has an obsessive-compulsive disorder when it comes to Pesach cleaning that is adversely affecting me and the kids. 
She is so obsessed, she comes up with her own rules that are not based on the Torah and makes us feel like animals and not human beings for the crime of eating in our own kitchen. After we eat, she chases us with a handheld vacuum and yells, Apsin nivel peros for not brushing our teeth in the kitchen sink before leaving the kitchen in case we have chametz between our teeth and we might cough or sneeze and spray it all over the house. It's not like I'm putting crackers in a wood chipper and spraying it under the bed. We all agreed that starting two weeks before Pesach, we would only eat in the kitchen. We kept our agreement. She has no right to yell and curse at us and make us feel uncomfortable in our own home. She claims she read that being meticulous about Pesach cleaning is a school for Shalom Bayis. But the way she's acting, Shalom Bayis is peace at home. But the way she's acting, she's causing the exact opposite. Can we convince her that she's doing what, what she's doing is not appropriate and not the joyous spirit that Yom Tov should have? Okay, well, unfortunately, I've heard this situation a number of times. Sometimes it comes from the wife, sometimes from the husband, sometimes from someone else. Um, Pesach is a gift from God about liberation, about redemption and salvation. It's meant to teach us transcendence. The reason we look for every crumb is not to become obsessed with crumbs, but because they represent the ego, and they represent, chametz represents the selfishness and the egocentric, and egocentricity of a self-absorbed life of self-interest. It's critical to understand that. It's not just an end in itself. Yes, it's true. I remember my mother, grandmother, obsessively looking for every crumb. And sometimes it was uh, actually amusing to me. I found it as a skeptic, I wondered. But when you start learning chassidish, you start understanding that. Now, it may not be that you are the best person to tell your wife, especially under this tension circumstances. She may have heard this from different people, whoever educated her. It's critical that your wife speak to her mashpia. And I hope her mashpia has the sense and the balance to explain this to her. Yes, to terrorize your family, even if they are somewhat laxer than you, is not the way to go. In general, that's not a form of education. You do things out of love, out of explanation. Now, I don't know all the circumstances. It could be there are other things, other tensions and pressures in the home that are causing this. This may not be the only factor. This is why I have to always qualify it. But if we were to for, for assume that this is isolated only to this, and the rest of the year everything is beautiful and peaceful at home, there's no question you could handle it. Can you handle it right now, a few days before Pesach? Maybe difficult right in the middle of the, of the, of the whole uh, tension to do so. But definitely afterwards... And I would also wonder how your wife looks at you and respects you. Does she listen in other matters? Because some seems like the way you're describing it, it's almost like a battle. So there's a lot to look at here. But I want to go back to the point that the whole idea is to help us connect to God in deeper ways, not to become obsessed with things. OCD is an obsession. The Rebbe has actually a letter to someone about OCD. It's not a healthier attitude. If someone becomes OCD around Pesach or around any mitzvah for that matter, and Pesach does lend itself because there are very stringent guidelines, and even culturally, it's become a very much something that people are go really careful about and cleaning and, and what you eat and how you eat and so on. But you also have to have a light spirit. This is not in any way being lax or, or dismissive, God forbid. It's also an understanding it's all besimcha with joy. And if that's lacking, that is a tremendous component. We say a kosher of freilich in Pesach. Not just a kosher, a freilich. Maybe that's why, because sometimes just kosher. 
can lead to an approach where there's lack of freilichkeit, a lack of joy, a lack of, of, of simcha, of joy, and simcha and celebration. And it's critical to understand it in that context. Unfortunately, many of us were exposed to a different approach, and, and it has turned off many people. I know people who are today not interested in Pesach at all because the, all they saw was this obsession. And they never saw the liberation part of it, the beauty part of it. And that's why it's so vital that we have to address it that way. Those are a few points I would make. Another person asks, if the Seder represents our celebration of freedom from slavery, why, from slavery, why do we make a Seder during Golis when we are not entirely truly free yet until Mashiach comes? Well, that's exactly why. Even when the Jews left Mitzrayim, the Degula Amitis Vashlema did not come. It's true that they got out of Egyptian slavery, and it changed them dramatically and radically, as the Baral says. This was, they became from now on psychologically free people. And it's the beginning of the concept of Geula, as, as, as explained in Chassidus, especially Kibichi Pozen, a mimer from the Friedrich Rebbe, Tov Shen Ches, 1948. And that's the whole purpose of Pesach, is to teach us that even when we're in Golis, and we're not entirely free yet, the Gula Mitzvah Rashlema. We also celebrate as much as possible freedom, and we have a taste of Gula in our lives. I'll talk more about this at the end of this program in the Chassidus question. Next question. It's considered an Aveda and very insulting to remind a convert that they come from idol worshippers, or to taunt a Baal and remind them that they weren't always religious. Then why during the Seder is the theme that we is the theme that we mentioned that we are descendants of slaves and idolaters? Shouldn't it be more important to focus on who we are now and who we can become in the future? Very good question. So first of all, we're reminding ourselves, we're not reminding others. If you were sitting by a Seder and just reminding, hey, you come from slaves, you come from this, it's one thing. We're saying, Avadim Hayinu, we were servants and slaves. It's an important for introspection to go there. Secondly, the goal is not to demoralize or to insult. The goal is to appreciate where we were and where we are now. To appreciate the darkness and never forget it because we appreciate them when we came out of it, like I discussed earlier, or else it's easy to become apathetic and take our blessings for granted. Those are the main key points. Finally, there's the element of transforming the darkness into light. That's the point of Mitzrayim. Today it's true, we're not slaves any longer. So why do we remember it? Because what point is to transform the darkness, the Mitzrayim that we do have in our lives, spiritually, psychologically, emotionally, and so on. The constraints, the fears, the insecurities, the inhibitions, everything that goes into the category of Mitzrayim. Okay. Is there a spiritual reason for the custom of Chabad to peel fruits and vegetables on Pesach? Well, the technical reason is because the peels sometimes could have been touched, could have been affected, could have had pesticide or other different things that may have compromised them. That's the technical reason. Spiritual reason I never heard, but you know, as soon as I think about it, peels are clippers. That's what a clipper is, a peel, a shell. And it could be that we're looking to get the fruit and not the shell. So part of Pesach is getting straight to the core of something. And maybe that's an element. That's completely my own thought. I've never seen it anywhere. It may, may carry weight, maybe not, but that's a, just a thought that I sh- I'm sharing. Why don't we eat matzah all year round? If matzah represents humility and bread represents arrogance, why 
Do we only eat matzah for eight days instead of all year long? Well, the same question can be asked in every mitzvah that we do that's connected to a holiday. We're supposed to crown God as king every day of the life, our lives. Why is it only in Rosh Hashanah? It's supposed to be sacred all year round, not just on Yom Kippur. The same thing with other mitzvahs. But the answer is twofold. First of all, to designate a time of the year that where that particular energy shines powerfully, in the case of Pesach, humility, and the bitl that, that uh, matzah represents, and chometz, the, the antithesis, so then you have a day, the seven, eight days of the year that gives us an injection that empowers us. And yes, we should be carrying over that message throughout the entire year. Not that we have to avoid eating chametz afterwards. Once we've had that intense exposure, like the Alter Rebbe says, chasal sidr pesach, he didn't put it into the Agoda that we conclude the Agoda because pesach continues all year round its message. The second point is, chametz per se is chametz on pesach. Bread is actually a mitzvah to eat on Shabbos and Yontif, lechem. So it's not per se that there's something wrong with bread. On Pesach, the focus is we recognize the arrogance that bread represents. But afterwards, we're supposed to imbue that humility that we gained on Pesach, that even when we eat bread, the shtei alechem ashvuas, for example, the offering of the two, the two loaves of bread, and in general the bread that we eat, that even the ego that we do have should now be permeated with the humility and bitl of Pesach. And finally, one more question. Why do we lean to the left on Pesach? What is the Kabbalistic interpretation leaning to the left during the Passover Seder? I heard it has something to do with evil. I would just like some clarity, please. So let's start with the Nigladika reason. The Talmud says, in Pesachim, Kuf Ches, Amr Aleph, 108a, two reasons are given. So leaning, firstly, represents royalty, that the royal would lean, it shows a, a level of comfort, a level of ease. So, but why to the left, not to the right? The Talmud says clearly, leaning to the right is not considered leaning. So two reasons are given. One is because you eat with the right hand, and therefore you lean to the left, and it makes it easier to do so. And there's a discussion, what about left-handed people and so on? And the second reason is due to the fact the way the anatomy of a human being is, leaning to the left, leaning to the right can also be a danger of choking. Leaning to the right, leaning to the left doesn't have that issue. Interesting, the Rambam only brings the first reason in Hilchus Matzah, Hilchus Chometz Matzah. However, that's the second reason given, and the commentaries talk about that as well, how that works specifically. As far as the Kabbalistic interpretation, if I recall correctly, and I didn't look it up recently, but in the Arizal, Kisva Arizal in Priyetz Chaim and Ashar Kavonis, when he talks about leaning, talks about this. Lean, left is Gvura and right is Chesed. Leaning to the left also demonstrates, as you said, sublimating the left side, which is the negative side. And turning that Gvura, the negative side of concealment and Gvura, which is the root of sometimes of, the, of negative energy, to sublimate that as well. So those are the reasons given. And finally, let's do the Chassidus question. How will Pesach be observed after Mashiach comes? Thank you, Rabbi, for educating, enlightening, and uplifting so many, many of us. We are told after Mashiach that after Mashiach we will still celebrate Purim and Pesach. How will Pesach be observed? We now spend weeks attempting to rid ourselves of Chumas to get rid of our arrogance, our egotism. Won't we have accomplished that as, necessary, as a necessary preparation for the arrival if God please, emits Hashem a Mashiach, and therefore no longer, need, no longer needed after that. 
Thank you, Rabbi Zaygezunt. Okay. So let's start with the, the mission at the end of the first chapter in Baruchas, Tafid Beis. Kol Yimei Chayecha, we say it in the Haggadah, that what does it mean that you should remember Egypt, Exodus, all the days of your life? So one opinion, Ben Zema, is also at night. Another opinion is also Mashiach comes. Lohavi Yimei Mashiach. That's what the Chachamim say. There's a beautiful, beautiful sikha from the Rebbe, Shabbos Pasha Boy, Tovshin Nun Beis, where he talks about it. Very well worth reading. He goes into the details, and he actually brings from the mimer from the mentioned before, Kibichi Pozen from the Friedrich Rebbe, Tovshin Ches, where that question is asked. Why do Havi Mesa Mashiach? Once Mashiach comes, it will outshine Mitzrayim. Mitzrayim was a Gaula. But it was temporary because after that, the Mashiach didn't come. There was Golis after that. And it was also, itself was not a transformative Gaula. They had to run away because there was still evil. The future redemption will be complete elimination, as you said, of eradication of evil. So why should we mention it? So in the Maimari answers because of the Milo of Iskafia. Pesach does have one quality. The quality of not transforming, but actually dealing with it. So even La'asid Lave will remember the challenges that brought us to this place. So it's not that there will be those challenges, but it's important to remember it, it's important to honor it, because that's the catalyst that, that ultimately led to the transformation of those challenges to the Gaul. Second reason the Rebbe adds there, in the Sikha of Boy Nun Beis, he says, because Pesach at the end of the day is Mashiach, it's just we weren't Zechi, we didn't merit at the time that Gula would come. So it's the beginning of all Gulas. So when Mashiach comes, we'll reveal the true meaning of Pesach that was ultimately meant to bring Mashiach in the Gula. Very interesting answer. So for those reasons, even after the Gula comes, Pesach will always remain part of our lives and part of our history because Pesach is the concept of Gula except then it didn't happen to the fullest sense, the conclusion will actually be when Mashiach comes. May all that happen even before Pesach. And this also answer goes back to the question that was asked, why do we keep Pesach during Golis? One of the reasons, that's why the addition of Ben Zema, that even at night, the night of Golis, we also remember Pesach, because Pesach is meant to help illuminate the darkness of Golis. And then, of course, even more, when Mashiach comes, when everything will be transformed. May all this be in our time. I'd love to be able to continue, but time we do have a limit of time. This has been My Life Chassidah Supplied, a special Yud Aleph Nissan 120-year edition, including a Pesach special. And everyone should have a kosher of Freilich and Pesach. May it be Taka the Gula Mitis Vashlema that the Rebbe sacrificed and gave so much of his life for, his entire life for. Even before Yud Aleph Nissan, we can march into the Gula to Pesach with the Gula Mitis Vashlema together with the Rebbe and their Nechel Shem Min Azvochem and Min Apsochem Min Apsochem Min Azvochem as we'll say both because of Mitzray Shabbos with the Korban Pesach in the third base Amigdash may it all happen immediately everyone be well have a very good Yontif and a good Tomid and um, a very Koshen Freilich and Pesach This program is brought to you by My Life Chassidus Applied Please help us continue our programs Make even a small contribution at chassidusapply.com slash donate.